The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Tell me, what was it like in your city of domes? It was beautiful but oppressive. Ah, did you get what you needed? Yes. Good. I was wondering, how do you know so much about the vehicle? It's quite old, from the 22nd century. Look around you. You can see that things from long ago are part of our existence here. Yes, that's one thing that puzzles me. All of these things are very old, and yet they look quite new. Ah, old, new. Time is really quite irrelevant. Looked at in a certain way. Yesterday, today, tomorrow. Who knows how much separates one from the other, or if they can be separated. Your rooms are ready. Huh. Thank you. Good night. Before you go, may I pose a question? Go ahead. Do you believe only in what is, or do you also believe in what might be? I believe in questioning what is, and then deciding. And you? In my case, I assure you, one and one always add up to two. I think I believe in what might be, that things aren't always what they seem. Our lives changed because we believed in what might be. We ran from something that was to something that might be. London. It's Thursday, December 4th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today where you can always write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org if there's any subjects or topics you'd like us to discuss. And for today, I've got an unusual one for myself that I'll be talking about in the second half of the show, and that will be a test of knowledge. It'll all be about a test of knowledge. No, not facts and incidentals and, and information, but knowledge. It'll be a whole discussion of really what we do on this show, epistemology. And in the final quarter of the show, it'll be more of a test of experience, what's happening at City Hall and some of the changes that are expected to be happening, but I don't really see a big change coming myself. And Robert, I understand you, you're saying the issue is black and white, and it's all about Ferguson. Yeah, the Ferguson issue, it's black and white, uh, right and wrong. And I don't mean black and white skin color, I mean right and wrong. When I first heard about that shooting death of Mike Brown by Officer Darren Wilson, of course, my first thought was this was not material for our show because it was so predictable in its outcomes and its players. I thought that not much else could be learned from this than uh, from many uh, similar incidents of violence from the left. As time has gone by, however, I have come to think that there's a, a few points of interest in the events surrounding the incident which might yield some intellectual fruit. But first, a, a rundown on the predictable. White cop shoots black man in Missouri. The scenario paints itself. 
contradictory evidence by eyewitnesses, bogus claims of racism, protests leading to riots fanned by into flames by the usual suspects, of which Al Sharpton is a notable leader, threats of lawsuits, an escalation of the violence to other communities around the world, the attraction of professional black block rioters to keep the flames lit and the hatred fresh, the verdict of the grand jury, the resignation of the police officer, ineffectual kid-glove policing resulting in vandalism, death, and destruction. All of this to peter out in the coming months as the powers that be promise to investigate and ensure that nothing like this will ever happen again. But above all, the most predictable are the expert liberal pundits blaming everything on the condition of the poor black population with only solution being more government handouts and special privilege based on skin color. Now, now the more interesting, although not too surprising, points in the Brown-slash-Wilson affair are the personal involvement by President Barack Obama, the degree to which the principal agitators have been allowed to persist in their calls to commit criminal acts, and the refusal by the media to label the violence and the arson as riots. All of the interracial violent crimes in the United States, of all of them, blacks are responsible for 85%, while whites for 15%. Blacks are 15 times more likely to be involved in youth gangs than whites. By the way, Michael Brown was a member of a gang. Blacks are an estimated 39 times more likely to commit a violent crime against a white than vice versa, and 136 more t- times more likely to commit robbery, and when whites commit violent crime, only 3% of their victims are black. These figures are from the 2005 publication, The Color of Crime. Now, given these figures... The likelihood that white-on-black violence is racially motivated is extremely rare. Rarer than the personal involvement of the President of the United States, which he, and he comes into, uh, into this fray, and that's a bit of a surprise, because, you know, there's so many of these mm-hmm. deaths and incidents going on all the time. Why is he involved? To say that Obama is stepping outside his mandate as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces is an um, understatement and only goes to show how out of touch he is with the reality of interracial violence in his country. For him to consider it a matter of national importance, given the violence and riots, may be justifiable, but for him to side with the protesters and riots by suggesting there's a systemic racial bias on the part of law enforcement is totally unjust. And he did that, by the way, in his broadcast just after the uh, grand jury made their... uh, made their verdict. He recently approved the expenditure of $50 million or thereabouts in federal funds to provide cameras for law enforcement as a result of the Brown-Wilson incident, suggesting that there was something in Brown's statement, or in um, Officer Wilson's statement, that was not true. Now, I'm all for such cameras, and I mentioned it on a previous show. I think all uh, police officers should have uh, these cameras to protect them not necessarily to protect the truth as the truth, but to protect them as well as potential victims. It's interesting you say that because I was just uh, listening to another talk show this morning where apparently another incident entirely unrelated to Ferguson, but there were a number of eyewitnesses who were saying saying things like, uh, or maybe it was Ferguson, 
yeah, I saw him shoot him in the head and I saw the officer with another officer in, in the car and none of those things were factual. There wasn't another officer in the car, the guy didn't get shot in the head. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that blatantly incorrect from a supposed eyewitness of only a few days ago. Yes. Can you imagine a situation Cosby's finding himself in with witnesses <laughs> who were talking about 50 years ago? 50 years ago, I know, no, that, that's just amazing. But you know, and I know that eyewitnesses to a crime um, are often wrong and um, to have a camera on the chest of the police officer I think not only protects the integrity of the mm -hmm. the situation and the truth of the situation but protects the officer as well as the uh, v the victims or the people he's arresting or uh, associating well, with. I agree, yeah. yeah. But I think the motivation in this case for Obama to fund the cameras I think is wrong. I think he's uh, bought into the racist argument and he's not part, he's also part of it. The implication, of course, is that Officer Wilson did something wrong when he quite justifiably, it turned out, defended himself with lethal force as the grand jury decided. The evidence provided to the grand jury corroborates his account of the events. And that's all that really matters in this case. The president is in the wrong. The rioters are in the wrong. And Michael Brown was in the wrong. The reaction by the president and the victims or the victim culture of the United States, belie a deep mistrust for their judicial system and a deep-seated hatred for whites by blacks. 150 years since the Emancipation Declaration or six generations of healing. Much has changed in race relations in the United States, but these improvements do not sit well with many who see financial and political gain from nursing the open sore of slavery and claiming to be a victim of it long after it was relegated to historical dustbin. Only 13% of the entire population of the United States is black. So for them to be responsible for a majority of the crime there and to blame it on things like poverty is specious. There are far more whites in poverty and yet we don't see them committing the number of crimes that blacks do. There are other factors involved of course too and I've mentioned two of them the racism felt by blacks against whites, and the agitation of old wounds by professional Washington racists. Enter the race baiters like Al Sharpton, who sat with President Obama in the wake of the Ferguson incident to hammer out solutions to the almost non-existent racism that whites have towards blacks. Now I say almost non-existent because of course there's racism on both sides. And witness how America's first black president makes decisions not on the content of the character of the men, but on their color. It's apparent to an outsider of the American condition that racism is kept alive in that country primarily by the black population and those who claim to represent them. Sure, there's racism, as I say, on both sides, but the crime statistics are clear-cut on which side is truly to blame for the continuation of this most distasteful of hatreds. One of the more unique points of this case over, say, the Trayvon Martin case, is the involvement of Michael Brown's father actively inciting the protesting crowd to, quote, burn this bitch down, saying it's over and over again, the crowd repeating the refrain, and several buildings were burnt down. This incitement to commit crime received the sympathy of the press and a pass card from local law enforcement. It's most disturbing, as it will undoubtedly lead to a trend to more violence in the future, if not for the case then, for future ones. Michael Brown was a troubled and violent youth with a long record of criminal activity. His death immediately after violently robbing a, vi a variety store, assaulting Officer Wilson and subsequent subsequently charging at him with the obvious intent to do him harm, as witnesses 
testified to is justifiable, as determined by a grand jury, which was comprised, by the way, of three blacks and nine whites. Not that this should be of any significance, but in the United States, it appears that color is everything. The jury sifted through over 5,000 pages of evidence and testimony to reach a verdict. The press, the president, a large percentage of the black community in Ferguson, and the general public at large, apparently, reached their verdict with only minutes of hearing that a white cop shot a black man. You Mr. Bunker? Bunker, yeah. <laughs> well, your neighbor, Mr. McNabb. McNabb? Yeah, McNabb called to tell you the two jigaboos just robbed uh, uh, Morgan's jewelry store and they're hiding in the neighborhood. Hi, how are you? <laughs> and, and, and in the house today's hiding in, they just picked up a few odds and ends just to keep from being shiftless. <laughs> you got any questions? No, I got no questions. <laughs> Well, now y'all take it easy. Till the cops quit their crawling, we gonna be y'all's house guests. So the best thing for all us to do is just relax and make the best of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. My name is Mike Stivick, and this is my wife, Gloria, and these are my in-laws. What are you doing? <laughs> this ain't no church social. Sit down there. These guys don't want to socialize with us anymore than we want to socialize with them. What'd, What'd you, you say? say? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's a well-known fact that I use calling guys who just as soon stick around with your own kind up there in Harlem or wherever. Is that so? That's what I always heard. Oh, horse. Look what we done found here. Uh-huh. A genuine. 100% died in the wool, bigger. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, say something. Now, wait a minute. Wait Come a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that's wrong. I ain't no bigger. I'm the first guy to say it ain't your fault that you're a color. Oh, that's not the you see, you, you see, he, he doesn't understand. He he associates uh, the crime and the stealing with the fact that you guys are black and not with the underlying social causes. Oh, then you must be a liberal. <laughs> well, man, we done found us a genuine liberal and an honest to God bigot. Now you can't beat that no way. <laughs> Hold it. All right. Yeah, we're putting me on now. All I meant was that he, he doesn't understand what living in the ghetto can do to a man. And you do. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm studying it in my sociology class. I got to sit down and talk to you. Come on, sit right down here. I got my professorship in sociology, you know. You know where I live. All eight of us slept in one room together. Eight. Mm. There was 11 of us in one bed. <laughs> you had a bed? <laughs> My father was you so... You had a father? <laughs> we ain't never had no father, did we? Yeah. No, I mean... <laughs> Well, man, look at you. Uh, uh, I'm gonna tell you, you should have called us and borrowed one of ours. We did, but he's dead. <laughs> See, he's running for a bus, and a cop fired a warning shot in his head. <laughs> well, you think that's bad. I don't know how you can laugh through all that misery. Practice, lady. Practice.
Yeah, hi. Is this the supervisor? Yeah. The problem is we need our show number changed. I understand that, but... I mean, under the circumstances. I mean, uh... A man is... A man is getting death threats here. I mean, you know, can't we make an exception? Yeah, death threats. Um... The anchor, actually. Yeah. I know, the world, the world is full of kooks. It's very scary. Okay, now, I don't think this is a serious death threat. I think this guy's a crank. The guys who threaten are not the guys that pull the trigger. Am I right? Yes, right. of course. You know, I guess I've been blessed in my broadcast career. I've never, ever had a death threat. I mean, not even an, an angry letter. I, I have never consciously offended anyone or have been controversial for the sake of 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 any controversy. You're right. absolutely right about that. You know, I mean, you are, uh, you know, a bland guy. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, some psycho has my name on a slug. That's not from being bland. Well, I, I didn't mean bland. I didn't mean bland. I, I, I'm looking for a word here to describe you. I, I can't find the word at this moment. But the point is, the guys out there with an AK-47 are not looking at the television sets and getting pissed off because they see some guy who's basically very bland. You know, I mean, I, you know? You said blanding it. I didn't mean bland. I did say bland. I, I know I said bland. serious, he'll just stick a gun to your head and pull the trigger and boom, your whole head will be gone. So, you I mean, you won't I, even feel it. I happen to know the human brain has no nerve endings. It's not wait, like... Wait a second, you guys. Thanks, Mr. Science, well, for know. that little bit of information. It's a guy's life, okay? I'm sorry. I apologize. Sorry. People know that you're on some wacko's hit list. What are they going to do? They're going to watch us. Our numbers go up. Right. I think, I, I think we play this. You're a sick man, you know that, sir? You're a sick man. Listen. You know what you are? You're a victim. Victim? You're a victim. This is the victim decade. People are going to be watching. The numbers are going to go up because they are waiting to see the bullet hit. Those kind of numbers, I personally don't need. Wait, you know something? I'm sorry. I'm not using the correct word here. I, and, I, and I realize I made a mistake there. I, I didn't mean victim. I meant martyr. Martyr. That's yeah. the word. Yeah. That, that's martyr the right word. That's the word I've been martyr. searching yeah. for here. You're a martyr of the free press. Martyr. 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 The press is increasingly becoming a factor in not just covering the news in the United States, but of creating the news, or at the very least influencing events which they cover. Ferguson would not have been an event of any consequence had not the major media outlets latched onto it to further their agenda of find a victim of alleged injustice and making a martyr out of him. I combed through many news articles on the violent reaction in the wake of the shooting end of the decision by the grand jury and could find very few articles which mentioned the looting, murders, burnings and violence has riots. One was from the Chicago Tribune, and there was another mentioned by the FBI. The chosen descriptors by the mainstream media were protest and civil unrest. Never a mention of the word riot. Synonymous with the term unrest are disquiet, restiveness, restlessness, uneasiness. So the hammer-beating death of a white man by black and Hispanic youths in the wake of it is uneasiness. The vandalization, looting, and burning of several buildings in Ferguson is only restlessness. The definition of the word riot is a violent disturbance of the peace by a crowd. This is the very term ignored by the American press, and the reason can only be to continue to give the impression that the response by primarily a black population of Ferguson 
to the shooting is justifiable protest in the wake of an injustice by a white racist police officer on an upstanding member of the black community. Find a victim, make him a murder, give the story legs, and watch the ratings soar. That's the mantra of the American press. I have to give President Obama credit, though, for correctly pointing out in his speech following the grand jury verdict that the U.S. is a nation built on the rule of law, and the decision in the Ferguson case was for the grand jury to decide. I don't know that he wrote that speech, but he said it, so I give him credit for it, because that's absolutely correct. However, the whole event became almost comical in a way when MSNBC showed a split screen of the riots in Ferguson with the address by President Obama suggesting that we were experiencing what we were experiencing is simply a disagreement and that what may occur are peaceful protests. He went on to suggest that people honor the words of Brown's parents, not realizing, of course, that the very next day his father would be asking them, to burn the bitch down, Ferguson has closely, sorry, Ferguson has loosely followed the template for the left's treatment of black and white violence and has reshaped that template into slightly more violent and less and slightly more menacing to the peace of the United Mm -hmm. States. The agitators of the next such incident, and there'll be many more, will use the way the president, the police, and the media have reacted to Ferguson as a model to push their racist agenda, to push for more social programs based on color, and to push the United States into chaos and violence, and foment the flames of hatred and racism. Now, hopefully Bob is going to bring the tenor of the show up a bit with his piece on knowledge through comic book lore and the U.S. interstate highway system. I'll leave it to you, Bob. Well, thank you, Robert. But, uh, you know, coming up when we return will be a test of knowledge, not of facts, but of knowledge. And too many of us seem to confuse facts with knowledge, sometimes just because we're a little sloppy, informal, or imprecise in our language. Now, I've got nothing against facts or trivia. In addition to being great memory testers, they're also very useful to know if you do a lot of crossword puzzles or play trivia games. But my theme will adopt a negative attitude towards mere facts and trivia, especially when they're being used as a claim to what we call knowledge. Um, For example, when Salim Mansour recently spoke of Dwight Eisenhower at a Freedom Party event this past November 15th, he was imparting knowledge about Eisenhower that related directly to Salim's theme about politics being personal. We learned a little bit more about Eisenhower's accomplishments before he was ever considered for political office, and Salim regarded that quality of Eisenhower as being of great value when we consider who our political leaders will be. As we go into our break, we'll learn some more about Eisenhower, but is it knowledge or is it just facts? And what is the critical difference between the two? When we return on the other side of our mid-show break, we'll discover that, like politics, knowledge, too, is personal. I think you should turn on the GPS. It is on. Yeah, but the turn-by-turn voice option isn't on. You know, I know I'd feel more safe if you'd turn on the turn-by-turn voice option. I love the turn-by-turn voice option. <laughs> Has it really only been 10 miles? I'm turning it on, but just to shut you up. Leonard, bear left and continue on Interstate 210. Ooh, sounds like that fellow knows what he's talking about. I'll put on my listening ears if I were you. 
What did you do? I found a hack online. I was able to upload MP3 recordings of my voice to your GPS. That is so cool. Counterpoint, no, it's not. <laughs> Continue on Interstate 210 for five miles. Here's an interesting fact about interstates. Really? Shh. He says interesting. Interstates are numbered as follows. Even-numbered routes run east and west. Odd-numbered routes run north and south. Three-digit route numbers indicate bypasses or spurs. Look, Leonard, there's a bridge. Drive off it. You know, we're not that far from Vasquez Rocks. Oh, they shot a lot of Star Trek episodes out there. Yeah, it sounds fun. Oh, smashing. Now, Leonard, do you know how to get there? No. Yeah, well, luckily, someone in the car does. Recalculating. <laughs> While we're waiting, do you know which president signed the Interstate Highway System Act into law? The answer coming up in 14 miles. None of you will get it. It's Eisenhower. And you just tied it up there, buddy. Good job. Our new category. Give me your tires, your poor drivers, your <laughs> adult passers yearning to speed free. I'm going to go with that one. Give me your tires, your poor drivers, your adult passers yearning to speed free. $400. The 45,000-mile network of the Federal Interstate Highway System is officially named for which U.S. president? David? Eisenhower. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Very good. Someone's stealing your car! What? Hey! Hey! Come back here! Oh, stealing is against the law! Fun fact. <laughs> President Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act from his hospital room. Ow! That is interesting. <laughs> you learn something new every day. state capitals that are not served by the interstate system? Ooh, another quiz? <laughs> Jessica. It's awful. It's over, Jessica. They're gone. Gone? Back to whatever peace they can find with their prince of darkness, which is mighty little, I would suspect. It all looks quite different in the sunlight, doesn't it? It looks a lot better than it did. I believe it will at night, too. I think the house is rid of its ghosts. I still don't understand any of it. It all goes back to the time before the Holocaust, when... People believe blindly in the concept of God and the devil. The one promising ultimate good, the other ultimate evil. Why would anyone choose evil? Well, evil often comes in the most attractive package. The trick is to recognize that and never open the package. It isn't easy being human, is it? <sighs> Considering the alternatives, I'll settle for what I am. I'd like to remind you, my dear Logan, I'm one of the alternatives. But since we can't all be androids, I guess we'll have to put up with what we are.
Well, I guess we're not all androids and can't be that. <laughs> a kind of a, a statement of the law of identity that we just heard there from the show Logan's Run. Um, what prompted me to do this subject was an interesting letter by uh, J.P. Blankert, who wrote a letter to the editor of the London Free Press on November 29th. And although his subject is about atheism versus a belief in God, that's not what I'm going to be focusing on today. It's the larger picture of what he was talking about here that really attracted my attention. And he wrote on in the London Free Press on November 29th, It is obvious even the smartest person who has ever lived couldn't possess even 1% of all knowledge in existence. But let's imagine an atheist who possessed 1% of all knowledge in existence. If this person was honest, they would have to admit the other 99% of knowledge they didn't possess could have evidence that proves God's existence. So it is impossible to absolutely state there is no God if columnist Rob Ripley, who he was complaining about here in his letter, claims to be an atheist, then I say he's actually an agnostic. To say there is no God requires absolute knowledge. Knowledge of not only our four known and understood dimensions, but all the higher dimensions that would be impossible for a three-dimensional creature such as ourselves. However, if Ripley had absolute knowledge, then yes, God would exist because he, Ripley, would be God. <laughs> On the other hand, to say there is a God only requires personal experience or an understanding that the design in creation warrants a designer. Ultimately, there can be two only two types of people, believers and agnostics, and that's the conclusion of the letter writer. There's so many things wrong with this reasoning, things that are, I think, absolutely wrong, whether the writer likes that word or not, that it's difficult to know where to begin. And if you look at it carefully, you'll see that the writer's argument is really a total rejection of all knowledge, period. Y you know, I was thinking about this, Robert, the, the phrase all knowledge in existence as if knowledge with some infinite quantity is really a non-concept. There's no such thing as all knowledge in existence. Uh, knowledge requires a knower. And without an agent of knowledge, knowledge ceases to exist. The term all knowledge in existence is like the word infinity itself, a mere mathematical potential. There is no such thing as actual existence of infinity. We've talked about that many times on shows where we talk about science and astronomy. And, you know, but of course infinity operates under the principle that you can always add one to any number and get a greater number. You can always add one fact to some other fact you may know, but that doesn't make it knowledge in the sense of what I'm getting at what knowledge is. You know, my world reference encyclopedia set has a quote by Samuel Johnson inside the front cover that reads, Knowledge is of two kinds. We know a subject ourselves, or we know where we can find information upon it. Now, note the use of the word subject. Without a subject or purpose to which the knowledge can be applied, there can be no knowledge. A god, for example, who's omnipotent, <coughs> would never have need of nor require knowledge. Knowledge is required so that one can know what action and effort to take when pursuing a goal or objective, which only a living physical being capable of action can actually do. If God were to act, then that would only prove that God wasn't a God, because he, he would be subject to the given laws of nature and of, a, and of causality, because that's what action refers to. You have an action, you have a consequence. And knowledge is ultimately for the sake of action. Action solely in the interest or goal of the agent, the actor. And only knowledge relative 
to the object being acted upon can be considered knowledge with respect to any particular action contemplated or carried out. All other information is irrelevant. For example, if I were talking about fixing my car and auto mechanics, the knowledge of what's happening in the Andromeda galaxy is not knowledge. It has no application at all to auto mechanics. It is useless and ir irrelevant information. I remember John McMurray, when I'd read him, he regarded such information, you know, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, as often being dangerous to the p person who possesses it. The information becomes mischievous, as he called it, and interferes with a specific action to which it does not apply. Knowledge is required only by rational, animate beings capable of acting. Inanimate objects do not require knowledge. The dead do not require knowledge. Rocks floating around in space do not require knowledge, and yet they exist, and, and they're moving. Only a living physical being requires knowledge. And if God possesses any knowledge at all, let alone all of it, then God has to be a physical living being, not supernatural and not a spirit, and not omnipotent, which is the actual concept the writer, I think, is attempting to express when he uses the phrase absolute knowledge. Now, all knowledge in existence well, never mind the whole universe. If knowledge is mere information, then knowledge can be stretched to a theoretical infinity, even about a single subject or interest. Purpose presupposes knowledge, not the other way around. You could, quote-unquote, know any number of things about any single thing. You could know a million things about a chair, for example, from the purpose to which it is put to the molecular structure of the wood or metal of which it's made, to the chemical composition of the paint or varnish on the wood or metal, to the properties of the light that determine how our eyes perceive the color of the chair, and on and on and on to the design of the chair. You could talk about all sorts of things. You could have an infinite amount of knowledge about that chair, but it would not all be very useful because you couldn't really apply it to anything. Now, as as a as a sense of a of an actual deity, one can only believe in a deity as a matter of blind faith. One can never quote unquote know God, especially in the sense suggested by the letter writer, since he defines God as absolute knowledge. But the only absoluteness with regard to deities is nothingness, zero knowledge, zero existence. And contrary to the writer's belief or misunderstanding, we do not, quote, know and understand the so-called four dimensions of which the writer speaks, let alone of all the other dimensions that are mathematical constructs. There are no alternative dimensions in which knowledge would be required. We can only act in the spatialized three dimensions we experience, with time being a measurement of distance between given points within those spatialized three dimensions. Time is not a separate dimension. As we've said so many, <coughs> pardon my pun, times on this show in the past, which no longer exists, time is inside the universe, not outside it. The universe did not come into being at some point in time. Time came into being at some point in the universe. And so far, you know, I've only discussed facts, not, for example, theories about those facts. That's knowledge, too. The fact represents the metaphysical, the theory represents the epistemological, which is reason. You know, ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble, it's what they do know that just ain't so that gets them into trouble, was the old famous saying, which explains a lot of the suffering and strife that we see in most, most of the religious countries around the world and the relative wealth and freedom in those countries we see that are secular in their governments.
Reality and reason are the arbiter of what constitutes valid knowledge, as opposed to knowledge about one's feelings or one's intuition or other non-objective sources, from superstition to prophecies. Knowledge, wrote Ayn Rand, is a mental grasp of a fact of reality, reached either by perceptual observation or by a process of reason based on perceptual observation. But while true, it is somewhat incomplete. John McMurray expands on this in his book Reason and Emotion, and when he wrote, science in the full sense is profoundly impersonal. Science is only interested in the object, and because of this, science is utterly at sea in the personal field. As soon as a scientist shuts himself into his laboratory, he escapes from himself and loses himself in a world of information. Of information, however, not of knowledge. Knowledge is always personal. The indifference to the person's in concerned, which is characteristic of the information attitude, is often called objectivity. objectivity. It is really only impersonality, he writes. Now, on a recent past broadcast of this show, Just Right, we explored the theme that politics is personal. So, too, is knowledge. Reason, on the other hand, as expressed by McMurray, is the capacity to behave not in terms of our own nature, but in terms of our knowledge of the nature of the world outside. The main difficulty that faces us in the development of a scientific knowledge of the world is a desire to retain beliefs to which we are emotionally attached for some reason or other. It is a tendency to make the wish father to the thought, and I think that's a lot of what the, the writer in the letter is trying to do. When the letter writer states that to say there is no God requires absolute knowledge, he brushes aside the obvious and necessary corollary of that assertion, that to say there is a God requires absolute knowledge, especially in light of the writer's own admission that proof of God might exist in the knowledge that we do not know. This too is a complete contradiction. The unknown is not knowledge. It's not even a fact or information. Then there are those things that we can never know, events of the past of which there is no record. Explains McMurray, in no field of knowledge is anything really known until it is expressed, and to express knowledge is to put it in the form of a communication, hence the power of the phrase, it is written. We joke constantly on this show that if you didn't write it down, it never happened. If you didn't record the event, it never happened. It's only through creating a way to store knowledge and to make it accessible to others that any form of accumulated knowledge can even be said to exist. And as to the issue of religion itself, I will again defer to McMurray. Religion itself, in any of its manifestations, can be real or illusory. The distinction rests upon the motivation which sustains the religious reflection. If the motivation is negative, the religious activity and the knowledge it informs will be illusory. It will be real so far as it is positively motivated. Illusory, illusory religion is then egocentric for the sake of oneself. It's defensive. It's grounded in the fear of life. Real religion is heterocentric. It is for the sake of the other. All religion, as we have seen, is, to, is concerned to overcome fear. We can distinguish real religion from unreal by contrasting their formulae for dealing with negative motivation. The maxim of illusory religion runs, Fear not, trust in God, and he will see that none of the things you fear will happen to you. The maxim of real religion runs, Fear not, the things that you are afraid of are quite likely to happen to you, but they're nothing to be afraid of. 
Both active and passive atheism are normally reactions against unreal religion, he writes. But what about things that don't exist? Is it possible to have knowledge about the non-existent? Uh, I'm going to say no, because, especially in the context of my conversation today, because any such knowledge has to be subjective, completely known and, you know, quote-unquote, at the whim or feelings of the knower. Such knowledge has no objective relationship to the other, meaning to any other fact or reality removed from the re knower himself. This requires context. So far, I've discussed knowledge primarily in its relationship to physical objects and things. But what about ideas themselves, or abstractions that don't exist as physical objects, like something we call the dollar, which we use for money, and which represents a relational value, not money itself. We use paper to represent this abstraction. The paper itself is not the dollar, nor is, as we learned from our guest Keith Weiner a few weeks ago, nor is gold properly expressed in terms of a dollar. The proper expression of the value of gold, which is a form of real money because it is physical and it is valued as such, is with respect to its mass and weight. One ounce of gold can vary tremendously in terms of its monetary value expressed. But my subject is knowledge, and the question that arises here is, can we know things about the non-existent? When an author or writer offers us a work of fiction, a story about something that never happened, perhaps even combined with things that do not or could not exist, can we leg legitimately say that we have knowledge of these non-existents? Well, that depends upon the person and to what use he or she may, you know, or may not apply that information. Experiencing pleasure is a purpose of its own. Now, what exists in this example is not the events told in a story or the things in the story that don't really exist, but the physical form and th the fictional story itself is presented in, whether it's a book or it's in a play, an oral recitation, a movie or a TV show. Those works of art do actually exist. Everything that is written or recorded in physical form exists whether what is written contains knowledge or information that can be applied to purpose is another discussion and debate entirely as far as reality is concerned. Now to help illustrate what I've been getting at for the past several minutes or so, here's a very clever, very funny, and very brilliant exchange that took place between three fictional characters from the Big Bang Theory about yet another fictional character from a comic book. And here's my challenge to you, our listeners. What knowledge might we glean from what we're about to hear? I'll leave that one with you to consider as we turn our attention from knowledge to action on the other side of this little gem. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Why'd you guys finish so fast? I don't know, there were a lot of pictures and one page only had the word Brack-a-doom. <laughs> yeah, well, I have street smarts. <laughs> So what'd you guys think? Well, there was a lot of action, mm. and the story moved along at a brisk pace. It was overall, what's the word I'm looking for? Stupid? So stupid. <laughs> I don't know how Leonard can get so caught up in this. It's crazy, they spend hours arguing about things that don't even exist. What a waste of time. I know, a hammer's so heavy that no one else can pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's heavy, I think it's some sort of magic so only Thor can lift it. That makes even less sense. I mean, 
No, 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 it doesn't. Thor is a god. The hammer is his, only he can use it. It's like Sheldon and his toothbrush. Or his thin, beckoning lips. Oh, wait, hang on. What if Thor's hand is on the hammer? I mean, if he's touching it with his god magic, does that mean I could lift it? No. Yes. Well, which is it? Maybe we missed something. Let's read it again. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Want some tea? Good idea, I'll help you. Wait, I thought we were reading. We are. We're just, uh, giving you a head start. <laughs> right here on the hammer. Whoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Well, hold on, who decides who's worthy? Does the hammer decide? Yes. <laughs> it can't decide, it's a hammer. You said it's a magic hammer. Yeah, but it, it can't make decisions. If Harry Potter's wand can make decisions, why can't Thor's hammer? <laughs> okay, if you're gonna start comparing wands and hammers, can't even take you seriously. while Thor is holding the hammer. Yeah. Then by the transitive property of picking things up, Hulk picked up the hammer. No, Hulk picked up Thor, Thor picked up the hammer. Okay, hang on. If I go to a bar and pick up a guy and he picks up a girl and then we all leave together, did I pick up the girl? <laughs> did that ever happen? Hey, we talking about me or we talking about Thor? Are we talking about me or are we talking about Thor? I wonder. See, that's the whole thing. Things can be analogies as well. And, uh, you know, at the opening of our show um, from, the, from the series Logan's Run, you know, we heard, uh, do you only believe in what is or also in what might be, asks the character in our opener today. I believe in questioning what is and then deciding, replies Logan. In my case, I assure you, you know, one and one always add up to two, replies Rem, who's the android. I believe, I think I believe in what might be, replies Jessica, the third character. Our lives changed because we believed in what might be. We ran from something that was to something that might be. End quote. Uh, you know, the future being the indeterminate can never be expressed with certainty, only with probability, which is, counts for the word might be which can be made more or less accurate depending upon the agent's intentions combined with the knowledge or lack thereof to change what is to what might be. Now, change is what all the winning candidates in the recent London municipal election said that they would be all about as we move ahead into their first term as councillors. Yes, I believe we will get change, but will it be a change for the better? or a change for the worse? Or will the changes being discussed make little difference one way or the other? Most of us, I know I'm like this, when we hear the word change used in a political context, we apply the word change to a general change in some new direction, not a change that continues in the same old direction. And Sometimes, you know, because of collectivist thinking, true change is not really possible. Politics has been moving away from the pr personal and into the impersonal. 
the mechanical. And the choices open to our elected officials, particularly to our local ones, are fewer and fewer with each passing election. They're all deeply committed to their ideologies, even though some of them deny having one, which is an impossibility, and to the same direction in which our previous council was moving. That's the funny part of all of this. Now, I want to know why so many of the other media, especially the London Free Press, are suggesting that our new city council will be some kind of refreshing change from the old one, which was labeled, quite unfairly in my opinion, as the worst city council ever. So far, Every new councillor whom I've heard speak, including our new mayor, Matt Brown, have publicly stated their commitment to something called the London Plan, which was already put in place, presumably, by the worst city council in our history. And they expect to approve the draft plan by this spring, after which the province will have to approve it. Now, there's absolutely not one single difference I've yet heard from this set of councillors that was said by the worst of the last bunch. Brown has said his priority is not anything like a 0% tax increase, but to move forward as quickly as possible with the bus rapid transit program, according to the November 27th London Community News. He sees a need for greater investment in London transit, where he says there's an enormous opportunity to fight congestion. Now, we know from our own experience and from a lot of the traffic things we've been talking about that rapid transit will never reduce congestion but will make it possible for some people to get around the congestion without having to go through it which is the case with toronto subway system in the neighborhoods where it operates but instead of traffic congestion of course you get people congestion and unless part of the plan is to take the buses off the roads, I don't see how more or faster buses will help, because the car is, was, and will be the king of the road for the foreseeable future for most people at most times. It's hard to forget how great and easy it was in terms of less congestion to get around the city without any congestion the last time the London Transit went on strike, and we talked about that in great detail on this very show. Now, Martin Horak, head of the Western University's local government program, was quoted in the December 1st Free free Press saying, Most important is to convince the public within the first few meetings that this is a council that operates differently than the last council, which was driven by an ideological divide and rife with controversy. They must project a different image to project the image of a council that will work together productively. I think this group is up to the task. Well, I think that's so wrong-headed. I'm just beside myself with how to address such other meaninglessness and contentless and contextless commentary. First of all, if the last council was really so bad, then why is it so important to implement the plans created by that council in such a hurry? Says outgoing London Mayor Joni Beckler, the one thing the new councillors will have to do is understand what the London plan is. Approving it is the most important thing they're going to do for the long-term health and financial well-being of London. They have to dive into the document. It tells you how you're going to grow your city, end quote. Now I have to ask, since when does a previous council tell the subsequent council what to do and how to do it? What do we vote for them for then if they're just going to carry on the same thing? You know, well, I agree at least it would be nice if some councillors could figure out what the London plan is and then maybe they could explain it to you and me. But if this change in council is supposed to be so different from the last one, then why isn't it changing the direction established by the previous council instead of speeding it up and implementing it? And I think there's only one reason. There are no dissenters left on council, at least none that I've seen so far. No one that I've been able to recognize as being capable of saying that other N-word, no. 
And I've used my reference to the N-word purposely because the shame of using that word is what the London planners want any counselor to feel. If they're not completely on board with the London plan, just don't say no. If everyone's really on the same page, as is being suggested and promoted, then any guilt for the disasters caused by the London plan can be shared equally and by no one alike. Another committee, another government decision that no one has to take personal responsibility for. So instead of a democratically healthy ideological rift, we have an ideological victory for the left. According to Batchelor, our new counselors must dive into the London plan because it tells you how you're going to grow the city. So what do we need counselors for if all they're doing is following orders from a plan drawn up by the previous batch of bureaucrats and politicians that London voters had so hoped to rid themselves of? Meet the new boss. Worse than the old boss. And that's just one of the little items I wanted to touch upon. One last comment. I don't have time for all of the things I wanted to get into here, Robert. One last one. This, this statement we keep hearing that, that is, it's a bromide. You know, we talk about bromides. We don't have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem, goes the popular and, oh, so, you know, so non-essential and irrelevant bromide about what ails our government. It's said whenever the demand for money exceeds the supply. But to put it in such realistic terms, which has a tinge of a capitalistic viewpoint, would be untenable for those who say this, as well as for those who cause the consequence of which we speak. Actually, we have both a revenue problem and a spending problem. Both originate in the real problem we have, a philosophical problem. Of course we have a spending problem, but the spending is just a consequence, a symptom of the political choices made. The problem originates in those choices. And it's not about only about the money, or about the amount of money spent, but on what it's spent, however small that might, might even be. Economically, in linear terms, you could view the, the, you know, which problem is it, revenue or spending question, by looking at the elasticity of each. If you're spending on sheer essentials, without which you cannot survive, then you definitely have a spending problem, because you can't cut back on it without severe repercussions. If your income has reached its maximum limit, then you definitely have a revenue problem, because you can't increase it to match your spending. So it's not just about whether revenue exceeds spending or the other way around. In the capitalistic world of business, even if a company is in a major profit position, it may well be experiencing both revenue and spending problems. That's why they always have to be on top of both and plan for the long-term future if they expect to have one. Because nothing remains static except politics and the mindset of how too many people really rely on completely irrelevant associations and non-essentials on which to draw their political opinions, we do have a revenue problem. And, you know, many of the businesses that used to provide the province's revenue are no longer here. And with the price of energy so high, that kind of business is unlikely to return with, you know, with cheaper pastures just about everywhere else except Ontario. Both income tax and property tax, for example, are a means of government raising its revenue. Each is a destructive form of tax collection, unlike the strictly consumption tax. Property tax destroys ownership. Income tax destroys productivity and creativity. Income tax is a revenue problem. Again, it's not the amount, but the means. The higher the income tax is, the less the working guy earns, and the greater the disincentive to work and be productive becomes. How can you possibly measure 
the harm that's done by this. I think we have a revenue problem. And right about now, I think I'm spent myself. I find myself faced with a time problem. Robert, am I actually short of time, or do I have too much material? I don't know. <laughs> well, no, I'm just kidding. I'm finished. Stretch do, it out. Well, stretch <laughs> it out, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Do I have a time problem or a material problem? I think it's the latter. So we're gone for today. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Everything will be alright. Look right here. Red Hulk is picking up Thor's hammer because Thor's touching it. He's <laughs> He's really just touching the strap. The strap is part of the hammer. <laughs> Are they actually arguing about comic books? <laughs> no, that, that can't be right. Maybe Thor's hammer is a new color of nail polish. <laughs> Worthy. You don't know his life. <laughs> no, there's only one logical explanation. Somewhere in the desert, we cross into an alternate dimension <laughs> where the women in our lives can finally appreciate great literature. 